Hi everyone, before we begin this week's episode, please note that this particular episode does contain depictions of suicide that may be upsetting to some people. If you want to avoid this content, the exact time code will be given in the show notes. Hello and thanks for listening to the Campaign Podcast, Campaign Magazine's weekly look at what's happening in the advertising industry. I'm Omar Oaks, media and tech editor at Campaign. And I'm Brittany Kiefer, creativity and culture editor. Hello, Brittany. Uh, later in this episode, you can hear Brittany's interview with Andy Nen, co-founder of Lucky Generals. Britt, tell us in 30 seconds or less what you guys talked about. Oh, well, Andy talks about his new book, Go Luck Yourself, which is all about the power of luck in business and brand building. And he overturns some common perceptions about what luck is and how it can play an important role in your business and in building brands. Um, it's really interesting and he brings up a lot of points that I hadn't thought about before. Mm, go luck yourself. Okay, interesting title. Uh, well, <laughs> that sounds great. But did Andy comment on the relationship with his family, most specifically his father, the royal family and whether the UK tabloid newspapers are racist? Did he do that? Sadly, no. But I think after this week, you know, there's a they've set a new precedent for interviews. Yeah, haven't they just? Uh, well, of course, we're talking about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's interview with Oprah, um, <laughs> which was, of course, aired on Monday night on ITV in this country uh, and first on CBS, which um, ha- which did this in the US. And Brittany, you're actually you're actually our US correspondent. You're, you're live from florida are you not yeah temporarily i'm based at my family's home in florida and so i watched it live on sunday when it aired on cbs so what do you think i mean we could probably do hours on just this topic or i could anyways um but i think um i was very interested in the different perspectives of an american audience versus a british audience so i'd be interested to hear what you have to say about it but from from over here i it felt very much like a lot of americans are you know hashtag team megan and they are very interested in this story from kind of the personal aspects and how the dynamics of the family and kind of talking about these people as if they're personal figures or celebrities that they read about every week which i guess they do um But I think it's more of a, it's interesting to look at the media surrounding it. I was very aware in watching it that this felt like two hours of entertainment, not (laughs) not journalism. (laughs) What did you think? Oh, well, don't do Oprah Winfrey down. Remember in 2005, she was the one that did that crazy interview with Tom Cruise where he's jumping on the sofa. Yeah, I love Oprah. I grew up watching Oprah. But I think that this very much felt like a narrative that they were shaping and it didn't have the same uh, feel to me as watching, for example, the Prince Andrew interview where Mm. I thought that was just an amazing hour or whatever it was of journalism. Um, this felt like Megan and Harry had a real hand and what kind of questions would be asked and what kind of story they wanted to tell. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to view it through that lens, I mean, uh, journalistic, you could, you could say that there were a lot of questions which weren't asked. I mean, um, what was the chicken coop? But that's a different conversation. Why were they in a chicken coop for a large portion of the interview? <laughs> but anyway, there was lots of questions around, you know, um, Megan Markle, she has this a strange relationship with her dad and now um, Prince Harry, it seems that he has a similarly strange relationship 
relationship and the emotional toll that that must take just being estranged from your family and apparently estranged from your friends as well though i didn't feel that there was a lot of delving into that just from a human human Mm. interest perspective um let alone uh lots of questions you might have around what they have or haven't done and their relationship with the royals um but Anyway, as a piece of entertainment, this, of course, airs prime time on ITV in the UK on Monday night between 9pm and 11pm. And of course, as you might expect, it was a ratings winner. 12.4 million viewers uh, at the time of recording. That's from the overnight audience figures. This was ITV's biggest peak audience since the 2019 Rugby World Cup final. The biggest on any channel outside government pandemic-related announcements since the Strictly Come Dancing final on BBC One in December. And even before it aired, I was doing lots of work asking media buyers how much spots would go for, 30-second ad breaks, for example. And buyers generally thought to be between 100,000 and 120,000 for what ITV was selling as a special buy. Uh, usually in the UK, you don't buy uh, against particular TV programs, but this was a special buy. Lots of advertisers could. Uh, and yes, um, after the success, after ratings were better than expected, uh, sources tell me that um, for the peak times of 9.30, 9.45, uh, whenever those ad breaks were exactly, um, they might be they might have sold for some of those for £150,000. Um, so, so, yeah, considering that ITV reportedly paid a million pounds to buy this from CBS for these exclusive wow. rights, I think fair to say they've made a good return on their investment. Um, I um, I was on the press conference call with Carolyn McCall this morning, ITV's chief executive. Uh, ITV's annual results came out and she would not be drawn on how much exactly ITV has made. But she very coyly said, we'll make back our money. You, you could say that. Um, so she's being very coy there. I think that, you know. And that's low-balling it, to say the least. Um, so, And it wasn't just a ratings winner for Monday night. Across the whole daytime TV schedule, big uh, ratings, you know, uplift for all daytime programmes on ITV. Do you, I mean, what do you think, Brittany? Do you, I guess, um, this, by the way, this did particularly well among 16 to 34-year-olds, younger viewers. Really? Within, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they, ITV said that four out of five people in that age group watched, which is huge numbers, and more people watch on catch-up as well. Um, does it feel strange that we're talking about sort of, you know, a linear TV live event, and we're talking about how many watched and the, the spot prices? It feels very old-world advertising, but uh, what, what does that feel like to you? Yeah, I guess it still shows the power of tv sometimes that when there is an event like this you know people will come together to watch it but also it's different i'm sure from interviews like the princess diana interview there are a lot of parallels with that but there wasn't social media at that time and there wasn't all the build-up of the the chatter on twitter and then afterwards people's you know on analysis and hot takes on what's going on so that's it's just in a completely different environment that they're speaking about these issues in than even five or ten years ago yeah lots of fallout as well at the site society of editors uh, which represents newspapers put out a statement on monday saying that the newspaper industry is not bigoted uh, as <laughs> prince harry and Meghan markle suggested Over 70 members of parliament, female members of parliament, both conservative and labor, came out and called out the the colonial undertones of articles and headlines written about Meghan. Yet no one from my family ever said anything over those three years. That, That hurts. From an American's point of view, 
Uh, I saw someone tweet, the British press gets really bad press. And I think that's something I've heard for so long that, that there's a particularly toxic environment in the British press. Um, do you think that is true? And do you think that we're at a moment where they have to face this reckoning and consider how they, how they do business? Do you think that, that, that it's correct? I think... But from both sides, I think if you're accusing the press of being racist and if you're the press, you're saying that the press is not racist, I think it's problematic either way. Because once you start doing that, you open yourself up to all sorts of accusations. So the Society of Editors said, we will not stop holding the royals to account. We hold the rich and powerful to account. That's what the press does, right? Well, once you do that, you open yourself up to accusations like, well, uh, where was your coverage of Prince Andrew over all these years? Why is it only coming out now, even though pe- lots of people claim to know privately his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, etc., etc., etc.? How come you treat Kate Middleton one way, but you treat Meghan Markle, another so-called commoner who's become a princess, how come you treat her quite a different way? Why is one so much more negative than the other? So the the problem is, I would say, is that gathering information, making sure it's true, and then reporting it is a difficult business. You and I know that from the work that we do in kind of our rarefied space of reporting on one industry, business media, right? When you're a national newspaper and you've got a political agenda, particularly if you're owned by a rich person who's got an agenda and you've got an editorial line to pursue, I can imagine it's chaotic. And we've had, you know, we've actually benefited largely from having a very competitive press atmosphere. It's good that journalists compete to get stories. But the problem is, and we've seen this 10 years ago with phone hacking, is that it needs to be regulated. And mm-hmm. not only regulated, but the police, there are actually laws in this country that existed for, before phone hacking that rendered phone hacking illegal. And it was actually found that the police were not enforcing the law as they should have done. Um, so it's good to have a vibrant, robust press, and sometimes you get it wrong, but it's a messy business. Gathering information and reporting it is difficult. That's why, by the way, I believe that you should pay for it, not give it away for free, but that's a different conversation. Um, so that's a long way of saying it's, it's, it's more complicated than one way or the other, I think. But do you think it's also, I was really struck by Harry saying that the difference now, again, take it with a grain of salt, because like I said, I think this was a narrative that they are conscious to put forward to the public. But he said the difference in some of these issues now is that they're uh, they involve race and they are happening in the arena of social media. So do you think it's worth the media examining? Um, well, yeah, we know that most institutions have some form of structural racism. And I think it's important that we're having that conversation about discrimination in all arenas of society. But also in issues like mental health, like I think there's more of a conversation about what role the media has to play, which I remember us talking about when um, after Caroline Flack's suicide and how that can contribute to people's mental health. Mm, Personally, I found mm. it uncomfortable the way they treated Megan's mental health in the interview, actually. Look, I was really ashamed to say it at the time and ashamed to have to admit it to Harry, especially um, because I know how much loss he suffered. Mm-hmm. But I knew that if I didn't say it, that I would do it. And I, I just didn't, I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear 
and real and frightening constant thought. And that, you know, I, I, I share this because there are so many people who are afraid to voice that they need help. And I know personally how hard it is to not just voice it, but when you voice it, to be told no. Ooh. This was pre-recorded. Should there have been some kind of trigger warning? Because I've actually heard from some friends where it really upset them, her saying she was suicidal. And I think that if we're going to have this kind of conversation in the public arena, let's also have some responsibility about how we treat it and how we talk about it and the support we give around that. Because I think to some degree, mental health has become this trendy issue that I thought about brands as well, how they talk about mental health and they'll, they'll put mental health in a campaign, but then are they really doing the hard work of supporting charities maybe that help people's mental health or, or thinking about how they cover it and how they talk about it because it has a real effect on people's lives. Yes. You make a really good point. Um, I'm not sure if that usually when um, there is a discussion about suicide on a program like that, you would have a a, a, num- a a number would pop up on the screen saying, you know, if you're if you're if you're in need of talking to someone called Samaritans, for example. Um, mm. So, you know, a responsible media owner should be doing that for sure. I think your broader point's absolutely right. And I wonder if 20 years time, you know, people will be looking back on the kind of the ways we talked about mental health in the media, even now when we're more woke than 10 years ago, right? They'll just look back at us and think, God, these people are primitive. Like yeah. how we used to look at people doing surgery 200 years ago with yeah. you know, without anesthetic and getting people to bite down on wooden blocks and all the rest of it. The way we talk about mental health still feels really primitive. And I don't understand how we're still so far behind. It's amazing that some of these issues are out in the open and people feel they can be more honest and candid about what they're going through but I just as people have said about things like racism or diversity like there is a danger if some of these topics become trendy because it glosses over some of the real challenges and issues that people are facing so I think let's this is maybe a starting point but it's not how we should really be talking about mental health going forward yeah I completely agree and um, uh, just one more thing on um, ITV. I mentioned the huge uplift they got. One program that did particularly well was Good Morning Britain. And I don't know if you saw, we're recording this on Tuesday late afternoon. And on Tuesday morning, Piers Morgan actually walked out of the set of Good Morning Britain because he was uh, so fed up with a colleague um, putting him on the spot about how he personally had uh, his editorial stance towards Meghan Markle, which you talk about entertainment i mean i mean there's just so much happening <laughs> on live tv right now yeah all of this uh contributing to um big numbers for itv well not this because um i'm about to talk about what happened last year but itv uh, on tuesday this week brought out their annual report and they are looking at advertising in april 2021 being up 75 percent year on year uh, of course uh, that's compared to last year when advertising fell 50 percent uh, because of the pandemic um but yeah so uh, the ad market bouncing back um i've got an article on campaignlive.co.uk this week where i've actually asked a load of media buyers the people that buy ads uh what 
they think is going to happen between April and June this year as we a year on from the pandemic after the collapse in the market last year. And we've had a wide range of views uh, ranging from 20% up to 70% up. Um, and this comes after the market shrunk by 45% in April and May last year. Very interesting. Go on campaignlive.co.uk to find out why they differ so strongly on that. Um, but back to your point about mental health, Brittany, uh, this actually brings us to an interview you've done with uh, Mitch Oliver, the marketer at More Teasers, um, to tee up their latest ad campaign. What did you and Mitch talk about? So Mitch Oliver, she oversees Mars more widely, which is the owner of More Teasers. And she was talking a lot about Mars's efforts around gender equality and ensuring better representation in its advertising. But one brand where that is really evident is in Maltesers. And some of her earlier work with Maltesers, she said, was a catalyst for her and how she thought about what role marketers can play in gender equality. So should we talk about their, their latest ad campaign? Do you, do you want to play a clip? Yes, let's play a clip. Roll producer Lindsay. Oh, Molly, is it that bad? <laughs> this one's bad, but this one... display <laughs> this campaign created by uh, abbott mead vickers bbdo uh, launched on monday this week across tv and digital uh this in this ad in case it wasn't clear a woman is sitting at the bus stop of a i think it's a friend and uh, she's complaining about her sore nipples after breastfeeding and she gets so irate that she crushes one of the maltesers and it leads to her friend not offering her any more chocolates <laughs> so Brittany, uh what did you think of the ad and um how it ties together with um, what mitch was saying so malteser says that with its campaign it's trying to address maternal mental health but what i found great about these ads is that it's not immediately apparent that that's what they're trying to do in the ads because they treat the stories with a real lightness of touch and sense of humor. So they're showing these kind of candid conversations between women and an honest look at what some of the challenges are facing new mothers. And as part of that campaign, Maltesers has a partnership with Comic Relief and they're supporting organizations that help mothers with their mental health. But I think they're trying to encourage more openness among mothers about how they're feeling and the real challenges that they're experiencing and to take away some of those stigmas that they may feel they may not be able to talk about the real the realness of it. This ad, um, of course, was launched in the run up, well, to coincide with International Women's Day. Um what did you think generally about marketing efforts tied around International Women's Day? What did you think about them creatively? And what did you think generally about is how much of a buzz is there that IWD, if I can call it that, how much is there a buzz around that in marketing? So much buzz. I think like many other things, International Women's Day has become more of a marketing event because brands have jumped on the bandwagon. And I feel very exasperated about that. I think it's so apparent now when a brand does a campaign about women that's just jumping on this trend. I, I don't think Maltesers is one of those brands. They have a history of doing interesting ads that show real experiences of women. 
the timing obviously was deliberate, but I think for many other brands, I would question why they're even doing something about International Women's Day. Why can't they include women and other diverse groups in their advertising year round? International Women's Day has become so saturated with these really tokenistic brand messages, and I'm frankly really tired of it what do you think they should be doing instead do you think they they should just be almost uh i don't want to say ignoring it but kind of you know uh not focusing so much on it or do you just think the the way that they're doing it isn't correct i think it's the way they're doing it but i think mitch oliver at mars just going back to that interview she had some really interesting points about this that it's not a campaign that they look at one once a year they look at not only how women not only how many women they're putting in ads but how those women are represented and portrayed what kind of roles do they get to play are they in leading roles are they in stereotypical roles even what kind of language are they using in the ads or is it language of power language of submission then they look at their agencies do those agencies have diverse creative teams? Who is leading those agencies? They are even looking at their supply chains and the the pay gap within their own organization. So any brand that wants to talk about women and wants to be part of the International Women's Day celebrations should be taking some of those steps and looking at those issues year round. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so go to campaignlive.co.uk to read that interview uh, it's called industry's gender equality progresses not fast enough says mars michelle oliver uh known as mitch oliver uh let's take one last look at another ad campaign this one is by deliveroo uh lots of news around delivery we'll get into that um they've launched a new brand platform which focuses on the taste and quality of food over its delivery services garlic the loudest secret ingredient of every dish you've ever loved. Garlic, baby! The leading light in Michelin star soups that keeps it real with a kernel. Behold, the beating heart of great food, pumping flavor through dishes from Mumbai to Marrakesh. And all brought to you by Deliveroo. Food, we get it. That was by Pablo Deliveroo. Uh, it was created by Dan Watts, uh, Freddie Powell, and Ollie Beal, and directed by Powell through Drool. Uh, Brittany, uh, we'll talk about delivery more widely, but first, what did you think of this campaign, which is called Garlic? So Pablo did make another ad for Deliveroo in January, but this is the first new brand campaign they've launched for Deliveroo. And they spoke to me a bit behind the scenes about what went on what went into this and they said they drew inspiration from on-demand platforms such as Netflix and Spotify because they want to focus on the actual content of the brand rather than the delivery mechanisms of it so for example Netflix doesn't talk about how it streams its content it talks about the shows that you can stream on the platform. So Deliver is trying to do a similar thing by focusing on the food. This first ad is about garlic. I believe there'll be more ads that focus on other specific ingredients and the quality of the food. It's very reminiscent of campaigns from brands like Lorpak. And actually the director worked on some Lorpak ads and he used to work at Wyden and Kennedy. So it feels very similar to that. But I like the ad. I think that it makes the brand feel more premium compared to some of its competitors. Yes, I completely agree about 
Lurpak. Now you say it does remind me of those Lurpak as that Widens did. And yes, just doing that and not being so obvious, if I can put it that way, about the different brands that are on delivery. I know that they do show a lot of logos in this ad, but as you say, it does make it feel more premium if they're actually focused on the delivery brand such that it is itself. Uh, was it delivery that did that ad? Was it last year or the year before where there's a family and um, the, the matriarch has a big delivery bag and she just pulls out, you know, a Whopper and, you know, these other different things from different restaurants. It actually got an ASA ban, I think, because oh. it was seemed to be misleading. Uh, but that's what that's that that earlier ad is what I mean about something that's just a bit obvious, mm. you know. And uh, one of Delivery's competitors has an ad out right now, which is just, you know, it's just like listing a load of brands which are on our platform it's not very interesting right. so yeah I, I i like that delivery is going in this direction uh of course delivery this is the week in which um the company which but last time i checked is 16 percent owned by amazon fyi uh delivery announced on monday its intention to float on the london stock exchange uh its shares could be trading as early as april Interestingly, the filing includes details of a dual-class share structure that would give uh, the co-founder and chief executive, Will Shu, 20 votes a share. That's <laughs> nice. Every other shareholder will have a single vote for each share. Uh, that structure will actually expire three years after the listing. Uh, but anyway, it's there. Uh, and they also um, they announced this thing. Did you see this? Where they're actually going to give customers some shares. Um, I've got to get on, get on their app and apply for that. But yeah, <laughs> um, interesting. That should balance out Will Shoe's stranglehold over the company, no doubt. Um, it's, it's interesting. And it comes, again, news in this space. Just Eat, uh, one of Delivery's rivals, is reappointed McCann after pitching their advertising accounts. Very strong lineup competing for that. McCann, Fort Off, Adam and Eve, DDB, BBH and TWA. Uh, interesting two Omnicom agencies in for that. Um, firstly, this, this delivery ad, do you... <laughs> Do you expect this space to become ever more competitive? I know that we've been working from home, but it's it's a longer term trend in terms of how these delivery companies are operating. Delivery now is floating. Do you think this is a space which is going to get more interesting? Yeah, it made me think when I was speaking to Pablo, when they made the comparison to Netflix, like Netflix used to be a DVD you got in a little envelope in the mail and you'd watch a movie maybe once a week. And now who would have thought it would have become such a major player and that the content it made, some of it was winning prestigious industry awards and that it's a space where some of the most interesting innovation in entertainment is happening. So it made me wonder, will this food delivery space take a similarly unexpected trajectory and perhaps we can't even imagine how it will evolve? Yeah. Shout out to Pablo as well, where um, many listeners um, might not have heard of Pablo or might not know much about them, but they're a creative agency um, co-founded, incidentally, by Ben Kay, the rugby player. Did not know that. Yes. And I met him in Cannes the last time I was in Cannes. And um, I am not the tallest person and he is among the tallest people. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, someone came up to us and called me a scrum half. I'm not quite sure what that means. But um, nice, nice man. Uh, nice people at that agency too. Uh, Brittany, uh, that's all the time we have. But what, are, what are you, what are you going to do from your US base? Uh, is, are there any restrictions in Florida nowadays? Can you just do whatever you want, go wherever you want? Well, you do have to wear a mask in public, but yeah, everything's open, which is 
uh, very jarring coming from London where we're still in lockdown. Um, but I'm still working for the next couple of weeks and I just interviewed Eleanor Mills, the former editorial director of the Sunday Times. She's launched a new media platform called Noon, which is targeting uh, older women between 45 and 60. So that article will be up this week. Great, Brittany. Okay, well, um, you've been interviewing a lot of people. Good for you. This is great stuff. Uh, now to Brittany's interview with Andy Nen from Lucky Generals. Hello, everyone. Here today with someone you probably already know, Andy Nairn, the founder of Lucky Generals. Well, Andy recently wrote a book called Go Luck Yourself, and it's about the power of luck in brand building. So, Andy, welcome to the campaign podcast. Tell us how you managed to write a whole book in in lockdown, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? It's probably the it's probably the worst bit of planning I've ever done <laughs> in my life because um, at the beginning of lockdown, if we can cast our minds back to that, um, and none of us knew how long it was going to take or what it was going to be like, and I foolishly um, thought that I might have some spare time on my hands. I mean, can you like, can you imagine that? Um, how, <laughs> bad a prediction that was so I was a bit worried that I was going to be sitting at home not having much to do and I I'd had this thought that was bubbling away and so I contacted you know um a publisher and and unfortunately or fortunately for me whichever way you look at it they'd sort of they really liked it so they they by the time I realized how busy I was going to be I already had like an editor on my back you know what it's like you know they're shouting for chapters and all the rest of it so it was too late to duck out of it um as we descended into probably the busiest year that any of us have had so I did I did regret it on a couple of occasions throughout the year but um <laughs> I think sometimes you need a you need a deadline don't you to sort of make you do something so yeah. I sort of somewhat stumbled into it and then I'm glad that I did well well done for finishing it and um, that's more than I achieved in lockdown um well obviously the the word luck is in your company name lucky generals so is the concept of luck something that you've been fascinated with for a while or what was it about that that made you decide to explore it in 2020? Yeah do you know what it's a it's a funny thing because obviously obviously there is a connection with the company like um, I'm probably not going to call my my next book you know uncommon you know truths about advertising or, or anything <laughs> like that. Maybe or, you should. Maybe that could be actually just start writing ghostwriting for everybody um, but no I, <laughs> I, I sort of in a weird way, again, even that's a bit of a fluke. Like when we set up Lucky Generals, that we didn't interrogate the name at all. If I'm honest, we just really liked the sound of it. It was actually a, a name of a band that Danny um, Danny wanted to set up when he was uh, like a teenager and never got around to doing. But he sort of always want, had this idea: oh, that'd be a cool indie band. Close enough, ad agency indie band. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's that pathetic um, sort of <laughs> deterioration of our ambitions. You know, our youthful desire, and you end up setting up our limited company um but um so we didn't really think much more about it than that we like the sound of the name and and actually that's sort of what made me like as I was thinking last year and we're all sitting around and it was probably the unluckiest year ever wasn't it we're all sort of think feeling yeah. a bit hard done by um I started thinking about luck and then I realized even though I've got a company with luck in the name I know nothing about it I've never thought about it read about it swatted up about it and so I thought I'd better find out. And then the more I sort of, you know, researched it, I realised that actually it's really quite interesting because not only do we never talk about it, like nobody talks about it. Nobody yeah. talks about it in Western business culture. 
So I guess I think of luck as kind of this elusive thing that you can't control. It comes to you or it doesn't, but sounds like you found that there's a bit more to it than that. Like what, I guess talk about why is it this kind of taboo subject in business culture and can it actually, can you actually make luck for yourself? Yeah, I think, I think the reason it's a taboo is, and it's, it's sort of kind of more of a taboo in Western business culture. Like there's obviously loads of places in the world where, um, where it's much more acceptable sort of topic of conversation. But in the West, it's this unspoken thing. In fact, it's actually an insult, isn't it? It's not even mm. just unspoken. But if anyone does mention it, it's like a really rude thing to suggest that someone's been lucky because it sounds like you're sort of saying they haven't um, you know, earned it. Mm. And and it sort of comes back to Victorian times is what I discovered. So again, this is all news to me. But because they were so obsessed by the idea of um, you know hard work and the Protestant work ethic uh, that was behind the Industrial Revolution... Um, their belief was that if you were rich, that was because you'd worked really hard and that God had smiled upon you. Um, and if you if you were poor, that probably just kind of meant that you hadn't worked very hard sort of thing. And and that, that belief really in, infects all of Western business culture to this day. I mean, there was a thing a couple of years ago, actually, when um, Obama um, and then I think subsequently Elizabeth Warren both made speeches about um, luck, uh, and they were addressing entrepreneurs and saying, really, there's no such thing as a self-made man hmm. because, you know, everyone gets a bit of help along the way and everyone benefits from a bit of luck and from taxpayers. And, you know, built the, 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 the bridges that your trucks run on have been built by other people. And, you know, so we should all let's not call ourselves, you know, um, self-made men. Absolute, you know, went down like a cup of cold sick, everyone, you know, boo, booing <laughs> and saying this is a disgrace. And, a, you know, literally sort of editorials about this is a... This is an uh, an attack on on all the virtues that had you know made America, and I think that that sort of sentiment is very common generally in Western business culture, where we think you know just work harder, you know, there's, and then you can eradicate luck. And obviously, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in hard work, um, so I'm not saying we should all you know slack off and do nothing, but I think that's just not true. You know, we we know increasingly that um, you know there are lots of aspects in life which. Um, which we inherit, you know, like uh, that we're born with certain advantages sometimes and privileges. And that was another big theme of last yeah. year, right? You know, we all become aware of our privileges. And it, and to just to say that everybody has equal chances and you should just work harder um, doesn't seem to fit any sort of, you know, true sense of the world as we yeah. look at it, um, I don't think. So how did you view luck before you started researching this book? And then how how would you view it now? Well, I guess before, not that I really thought about it much, like I say, um, I maybe like you had kind of thought it was just some sort of slightly superstitious strain. It sounds like um, an old fashioned thing to talk about, doesn't it? Like the that primitive people back in the day believed in. Um, and, and I think that's because there is a sort of luck that you can't do much about. It's like the... It's it's sort of like if you think about playing a game of cards, it's the, the hand that you're given. Like there are some things that you just, you know, you're born into this demographic mm. or if you're a brand or a business, you know, they, these are the things that happen to you and the forces of God and all that kind of sort of stuff that are out of your control. Um, but then there's a whole bunch of things that um, you can control. This is a sort of stuff that I'm obviously much more interested in. Um, so if we go back to that card playing analogy, it's like you, you can't do anything about the card you're given, but then you can try and make the best of your hand. And I think that's more accurate to say that, you know, we can all make 
the best of the hand that we're dealt in life or in business. Yeah. Um, which is different from saying that everybody has literally the same equal chances because we have to take into account how people start out as well, I think. Yeah. Has this changed at all how you lead Lucky Generals and your team? Like, do you, um, maybe they're sick of hearing you talk about your new book, but do you talk, <laughs> do you talk to them about luck more often or like some of these principles that you learned about? Yeah, precisely because of, uh, I mean, the amount of piss taking about this is obviously quite, uh, you know, that uh, people are always taking the mickey out of me for ha- mm-hmm. having done this and sort of, um, so I, I'm trying to talk about it a lot less now. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what it just has made me feel is, like a lot of things in life, you've got to be conscious of it. Because mm-hmm. one of the things, so I hadn't thought about it at all, um, like most people. And I think the minute you start being conscious of your luck, though, then it's really helpful because then on your good luck, you can be, and there's lots of evidence about this, you know, just as individuals, let alone businesses. But if you if you are appreciative of the things that you've been given, um, you know, whether it's a privilege of some sort, like, you know, demographically or just you know, um, something that is lucky that has come your way, mm-hmm. um, even if it's something that you've achieved, but you you still need to be appreciative of, you know, so to wake up and, um, you know, realise actually, despite all, you know, the difficult things of the last year, you know, I'm lucky to be in a business that I really love with partners I love working with and lovely, amazing people and clients and all these other good things. It's a, I think that's a helpful thing to be mindful of uh, and then some of the other um, tips that I've learned along the way from the book are things that I maybe do or we all probably do intuitively but again having them written down and making you think about them and um, maybe practice them a little bit more consciously it just gets you to those ideas quicker I think. What are some of those principles that I'm just curious especially in 2020 when we probably were all rethinking how we lived and worked that you want to take from from that from that you know your book and into 2021 well i think the first set you know we've slightly talked about you know there's a whole um batch of tips that you can use that involve appreciating what you got like i think a, a lot of the time what our job is is helping businesses appreciate the things that they have right under their nose because the more familiar you are with something the probably the less appreciative you are so you you know, a lot of the time a client comes to us and we and really we end up sort of saying, oh, haven't you ever done anything with this before? And and they they just don't, you know, because they, you know, it might be the company name is amazing and they've never thought about that because, like, they read it, you know, thousands of times a week. Yeah. Um, but if you come from outside and you say, well, that, that's amazing, or or the, the brand might come from an amazing place, like it's got a great provenance story. But if you come from that place, you probably don't think it's very exciting um, because it's just your hometown sort of thing. And so if you can go into, no, that place, the rest of the world would love to know about that sort of backstory. So a lot of the time it's about helping organisations realise, like their history, that's another classic one, making them realise that 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 would be of interest to other people and that is gold dust and you're sitting on this gold dust and you just haven't realised it is is quite often where agencies, I think, as an outside force can help um, clients. So there's those sort of tips and then there are tips about... um, I'm interested in helping, you know, one of the things that helps luck is if you if you look outside of your comfort zone, I suppose, and you, you know, you take different ideas from different places and you can sort of find out opportunities everywhere. And I think a lot of the best strategies come from, you know, borrowing, frankly, influences from other disciplines, maybe. And because I think we've been so busy over the last year or so, like, you know, the tendency is to have our heads down 
and sort of be buried in our own industry, our own sector sort of thing. I think it's helpful to sort of say, oh, what could we learn from this completely unrelated field over here? Like, what could we learn from music or from sport or religion or science or whatever? Yeah, so how could a brand get lucky? And you published an excerpt of your book and campaign recently, and you had some really interesting examples in there. So maybe it'd be useful to talk about a few of those examples of how brands use luck to their benefit. Well, I mean, one way would be, and this is maybe an extreme way, so it's quite a good way to start perhaps, is, is to start with bad luck, and, you know, because in some ways you could think, well, that's the how. What use can that be? But so many of the best companies and campaigns, I think, have really started with bad luck and turning that into good luck. Um, in fact, there was a there was a uh, a magician, I think, in the um, states that was apparently like some huge showman of the twenties or thirties or something like that. It was called Channing Pollock, and he said that actually the luckiest thing about most great individuals is their ability to turn bad luck into good luck. It's not that they're particularly lucky, it's just that they're resilient. Mm. And um, I I think that's really true. Like a lot of the best brand strategies, if I, th- if I think about um, um, Body Form or Libres at the moment, who's like, I think, just do fantastic work. Yeah. Um, but if you think about the brief, it's sort of, you're in a category which people are in, you know, or there's a lot of taboos around, and society um, perhaps is embarrassed to talk about and there is a lot of negativity and, you know, um, and so on surrounding it, you could sort of say, well, that makes it quite hard if you're a marketer. How do you operate in a market where people, you know, can't even show the product yeah. or talk about it? How do you talk about periods or... Yeah, exactly. So so you would kind of traditionally, the traditional view would have been that's a bit of bad luck, isn't it? That people can't even talk about this stuff. But actually, they've turned that on its head and made it the very thing that is most amazing and joyful um, by they've almost ran towards the bad luck and said, no, we're going to make that into good luck and beautiful, joyful, mm. um, you know, advertising like Viva La Volva. There's lots of examples of that in the book. Taboos are often a brilliant source for for great um, brand um, marketing because because they're a bit exciting, aren't they? And we, the very fact that we're breaking a taboo makes us sell. So that that would be one example. Or or actually just looking at a flaw, you know, like a lot of um, great brand campaigns have started with someone spotting something that was wrong with the product and then thinking, but does that have to be a bad thing? Maybe that could be a good thing. You know, the, the great Guinness, those who, you know, good things come to those who wait. You know, that that's like a brilliant ninja move, isn't it? You know? You've like taken the fact that you have to wait for your pint, which is really annoying, and turned it into a really um, aspirational thing. (laughs) I think that's like one set of behaviours that brands can always find some bad stuff to turn into good stuff. Are there ways you can like practice being lucky? Like, can you build luck as a muscle, for example, or set up the right conditions to be more lucky definitely because a lot of this is about sort of statistics and sort of like just maxing your chances and you know this is it's all down to gambling theory and actually one of the luckiest companies i've ever worked with funnily enough is um paddy power uh who obviously know all about luck from a very mathematical and you know statistical point of view uh and societal point of view and they've got you know their own mischief department uh which is only you know dedicated to having doing fun slightly crazy often sort of stuff in society um and they know that not all that stuff will work but they know that you know on the balance of probabilities some of it will and will come off in a really big way so they they've set up that company to maximize their chances of of having luck um or you might look at um 
the company was like 3M and a lot of other companies in Silicon Valley ring fence some time in their workers' diaries that can be spent on sort of passion projects. And they sort of accept that some of that time will get wasted and it won't, you know, um, amount to anything. But then occasionally yeah. it will come, it will go big and they'll they'll discover something that they wouldn't have other, otherwise discovered. Um, so there's lots of practical things like that, or even just the way that the building is laid out, you know, like, you know, a lot of companies increasingly realise that physical environment can have a, an effect on, you know, cross-fertilisation of ideas and uh, and so on. Yeah, well, I guess that must be difficult for all businesses working remotely at the moment. Like, do you find that in this new working environment, it's harder to create those more spontaneous interactions or discoveries? Yeah, I think it is, actually. Um, you know, because so many of our best moments are when you they're not planned are they they're like you know it's, it's serendipity you know is the word isn't it and which is a happy accident and you you wander past someone's desk and you're not supposed to be looking at it but you just can't help but oh what's that um and then you have a bit of a chance conversation and that might lead to something whereas i guess in the zoom world it's more regimented isn't it yeah so uh yeah i think it is harder and we're certainly trying to you have, you have to try and work a little bit harder i think and again just be mindful of it um, to help those things along, I guess. Yeah, I like. And just going back to Patty Power, I really like that idea of having a mischief department. I think I've heard some agencies talk about doing that, like carving out time in the week for people to work on passion projects. But I would imagine it's kind of easier said than done because you do have you have to run a business and keep it going and serve clients. So, do you think that's something that agencies should be doing more of, just to allow? their staff to kind of roam free and and find these moments of luck yeah i think it's it's about partly about stuff like that or it can be about encouraging you know getting diverse teams i mean that's another no-brainer really um obviously there's a really important ethical case for diversity of teams but but frankly there's just like a massive commercial and creative case for diversity because that that hugely increases your chances of coming up with a different idea, doesn't it? By having a mixed team with different backgrounds, yeah. you're definitely going to get a better shot at it than having a homogenous team. So it can be something as simple as that, uh, which is terrible that we've got to make such a basic point, but that but that is that is true. Um, that can turbocharge your creativity. Or it could be, you know, just getting outside influences in and getting, you know, regular talks from interesting people that are outside of, or just encouraging people to not have a, like an at the desk culture of um, where you got a, you know, a presenteeist sort of culture, you know, saying that it's fine to have a little wonder about, you know, go to the art gallery and, you know, whenever those things open up or, you know, sort of walk around the park or realising that that's not dead time and that looking outside of our industry is a is a good thing that's not skiving off that is actually you know living a more interesting life that's going to actually have a benefit on the work yeah now you you're donating the royalties from your book to the organization commercial break can you tell the listeners what that is and why you want to support their mission yes um they're a really good cause so i'm very um happy to be giving all the royalties to them the top line is that they are uh, an organization that helps working class kids uh, effectively to get a lucky break into the industry so i like the idea of writing a book about luck that helped that helps other people get a lucky break you know in a, at a time when obviously it's tough for a lot of people and that you know i realize i've had a lot of luck in my life but there's a lot of people that who, who don't have that sort of um, benefit so yeah. so they are working class kids get a, a lucky break and what they do is they work with agencies um uh, 
number one. They also work with um, clients and you know brand marketing companies and media owners and so on. And then they work with the candidates themselves to sort of um, uh, spruce up their skills and help them realise how they can navigate and then thrive in those kind of environments. So there's kind of three things that they do. And we've used them before ourselves, you know, personally and found them to be like just really, really good. And mm. they are ex-agency people, you know, that understand the kind of peculiar sort of little ticks of agency life. And I just feel like at this moment it is tough for people trying to get a break. And I think class actually is one of the is one of the forgotten dimensions um of this and I read a brilliant essay by a lady called Lisa Thompson yeah she's written for us before she's great yes she's written a couple of times she's so good and and uh she wrote an IPA excellent sort of essay last year and it really struck me as this is such an important thing that a lot of people just don't talk about and a lot of the other big issues that are rightly um talked about sort of intersect with it you know things like race and um all, all the other sort of diversity issues ultimately have quite a big crossover with class yeah um so i thought that would be quite a good thing to champion too well that's great so everyone go check out go luck yourself uh tell us andy where can people find it well as the amazon agency obviously i'll start (laughs) (laughs) i'll start with of course you can imagine where where i'll be getting mine from um also though from waterstones um and from the publisher which is called harriman house um and I guess, uh, when they open up all the other um, bookshops. But yeah, Amazon and Waterstones are good places to go searching uh, for now. Great. And you can also get a taster of Andy's book on campaignlive.co.uk. Thank you, Andy, for talking to us. Thank you very much. It's been really nice to speak to you. And that is the show. Thank you so much, listener, for tuning into this week's episode of the Campaign Podcast. And if you're still listening, here's a bonus bit of information. Prince Harry is actually exactly a week younger than I am. I completely forgot to mention that before. How could I forget? Really important information. And there you go. Now you know. Thanks for sticking around. (laughs) This episode of the Campaign Podcast was edited by Lindsay Riley. And of course, Campaign Magazine can be found online at campaignlive.co.uk, where you'll get all the latest ad industry news, analysis, and latest ads, of course. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe, leave a review, and please send feedback to campaign at haymarket.com. Remember to put podcast in the subject line. Please stay safe wherever you are and I hope you can join us again next week.